Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to She Starts It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential, exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how did she start it? She Started It with Angelica Malin is kindly sponsored by Bloom and Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore? Bloom and Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist, and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days, and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany, so they've got you covered. So head on over to blueandwild.com, use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you, and treat yourself. Ash Sarkar is a 27-year-old journalist and political activist, serving as senior editor at Navara Media. She contributes to The Guardian and The Independent, as well as featuring on TV programmes such as Question Time, Good Morning Britain, Sky News and Daily Politics. The Times has described her as Britain's loudest Corbynista, and Dazed Magazine said she's one of the voices resetting the political agenda in the UK. Over the past year, she's become one of the country's leading left-wing political commentators. How does it feel hearing that bio back? Uh, I feel like I want to shrivel up and die. <laughs> There's nothing worse than um, hearing a better version of yourself in front of you and you just go, well, all I can do is disappoint now. <laughs> Does it make you, do you get a bit of imposter syndrome? I think that the only people who don't have imposter syndrome are the real frauds. Mm. And I think a little bit of imposter syndrome is, is quite good for the soul. It's the thing which makes you read one more book or listen to one more thing or engage with one more opinion. Mm. Um you know, it's a little bit of fear. <laughs> I recently did a panel event where I was on a panel with Levinson Wood. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's an adventurer. And he was introduced just before I was. And it said Levinson um, did a programme called Walking the Nile, where he walked the length of the Nile. And then I was introduced next. And I was like, well, I didn't walk the Nile. <laughs> I was like, never get introduced after someone like that. It's like, well, I've walked along Regent's Key. Yes. Well, how about yes, that? I'm very good at Tottenham Court Road. Um so, Ash, okay, so tell me, in your own words, um, it's less than a year than, since you entered the public consciousness after that confrontation with Piers Morgan. Um, how's your life changed since that incident? It hasn't really, to be honest with you. I still do what I'm passionate about, which is 
comment and analysis. I still teach a master's in Amsterdam. Uh, I still get rinsed by my mates every time Spurs fuck it up. Um, not not much has changed. I get bought more drinks. That's something which has changed. But but ultimately, um, it hasn't drastically affected my life and I'm really glad mm. about that. It wasn't my first time on Good Morning Britain. I'd been on once before. It also went viral, but not quite to the same extent. And I'd been on Question Time before that. So it didn't really feel like my life had been turned upside down. Mm. But it must have been a slight step up, a bit of a gear change. In the sense that it really changed the way that my social media presence was functioning. Mm. Uh, My follower count shot up. But all that enabled me to do was more of what I was already doing. Mm. And that feels really good Mm. because I think that maybe had something like that happened at a time where I felt a little bit more unsure of what I was doing, what direction I wanted to go in, I'd have found that really, really difficult because then you feel you've been uh, put up on this pedestal and all you can do is tumble off of it. Whereas where I go, oh, that's really nice. I've got enough followers so that when I make a video about abuses at Yarl's Wood or what's been happening in Gaza, it's really going to have reach. Mm. So it happened at just the right time. Mm, it was like a bit of a confidence boost almost because you suddenly like had this amazing platform to speak about what you wanted to talk about. Yeah, immediately it doesn't feel like a confidence boost. You, I came out of the interview... Uh, and I cried. I rang up um, a friend of mine and I was like, I'm so sorry, I fucked up this interview. I just, I made a complete fool of myself. I was yelling about communism. Uh, this isn't, you know, because we we it was in anticipation of a Stop Trump demonstration. I was like, this is comms 101. Mm. I didn't get my message across. And my friend was like, look, we'll watch it back together. Don't worry, and then we'll see what you could have done better. Mm. Then he watches it, calls me back five minutes later. He was like, "That was hilarious. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. That was great." And then it had all these political effects that I didn't expect. Which is suddenly, when you're talking about the abolition of wage labour, what's happening in terms of the left talking about you know, renationalising the railways doesn't seem so scary. Mm. So you've actually served a function in, in the wider political ecology. Mm. Did you have any idea once you came off that it it had the potential to go viral? Did you know like a big moment had happened on screen? No, really? no idea. I just thought I'd messed up. And then uh, I got back home and I hid under the duvet for like two or three hours. Um, I was really worried that I would just be ridiculed for having lost my temper mm. and lost my cool. Mm. And I did a tweet, which was, you know, that particular clip. And I was like, mm, how's your morning going then? Because I thought, oh, the worst thing you can do is hide from it. And if you've done something where you feel embarrassed, just own it and laugh it off and it'll be fine. And then a little bit later, suddenly it's this huge moment. I was like, oh, I did not expect that to happen. I think it's really great that you owned it in that way, like you said, not not running from it. Your Twitter presence is obviously massive now and you have a, a huge following and a very engaged following. How do you use social media for your work and are you ever scared of putting things online or do you feel quite strong in what you put out? Um, I've probably been a really irresponsible tweeter in the sense that I haven't separated my personal account from my professional account. I haven't uh, cleaned up my public-facing persona in any sense of the imagination, so I still tweet about, like, 
come downs and like you know football and I swear all the time I do all the things that you're told you're not supposed to do yeah and then I mix that up with like oh I read this from Gramsci today and this is really important Mm. or you know did you know that this is something that's going on in Bangladesh and the reason why I think people respond to it is it's nothing about uh, me in particular I think it's about the form and the fact that the form allows you to see someone do their thinking in real time. Mm-hmm. And that's really appealing. So instead of just, here's your thousand, two thousand word editorial on a matter and it's polished and it's complete, you get to see how someone makes connections between all the different aspects of their life, all the bits of pop culture that they're interested in and get excited by, um, all the things that occupy their time. And it means that you can have more of an emotional connection to political content. Mm. Yeah, you can see it unravel in real time in a way that I think you just don't get that with Instagram. Like it to me just feels a lot more flat. And there is something quite unpolished about Twitter that I really enjoy. Yeah, I think so, too. And Instagram is just sort of like... Well, for me, it's like, well, here's a picture of my niece. She's still cute. Um, and, and it's really like, lovely. Like, here's me in a bikini. Yeah, like, you know, it's like, hi, <laughs> I've sucked in my gut for five minutes so you could take this photo. Um, but it's not the same as uh, a dialogic form like Twitter. It's mm. an ongoing conversation. Mm. And I think that's brilliant. Was there a lot of backlash on Twitter after the Piers Morgan incident? Oh, Yeah. Um, And that's the thing is that uh, once you have an understanding that media is both a weapon and a battlefield that you have to win, anything which uh, advances a certain point of view is going to have a huge backlash because that's how you build political power. That's how you legitimise a worldview. And that's why it's so important. So I do this thing it uh has much more of a sympathetic response than people would have anticipated mm. i think the reason why that is isn't because people feel particularly strongly about karl marx it's because they really hate piers morgan <laughs> and it, yeah. you know you're sort of able to play off of that foil um in a way and it meant that you had lots of people particularly uh on the right saying you have to discredit this moment mm. you know um, no, she's the real idiot. She's historically illiterate. She's not a real communist, blah, 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 blah. Um, and the backlash is happening because they've realised that they've lost ownership of the cultural moment. Mm. And that's quite scary if you're trying to hold on to power. Yeah, yeah, they've lost ground in it. And I, I suppose they're, they're fearful of what you represent, which is something quite new and something contrary. Um, so I ask all of my guests before they come on the show to tell me three turning points in their careers. Can you tell me a little bit about the first one that you chose? Sure. The first one I chose was uh, the occupation at my university in 2010. So that was when the tuition fees vote was going through Parliament. And I don't know if you remember, but there was, uh, you know, a huge student movement. So uh, mobilisation of thousands of people. You had uh, Millbank getting smashed up. You had uh, people getting kettled on Westminster Bridge, you had horse charges. A very good friend of mine uh, was very badly injured by a police baton. He had to have uh, you know, brain surgery. Um, and it was a really intense moment of politicisation because we all occupied our university and suddenly it becomes this uh, 
engine demanding social change and it it requires a lot of organization not in a top-down way and that was the beautiful thing it was really democratic really horizontal but you've got people who've never written a press release in their lives setting up a press working group you've got people who have you know just started uni and they've still got their like Chaucer anthology under one arm being like Okay, I guess I've got to work out how we coordinate a movement of, you know, tens of thousands of people. And it was incredible. It That was how I met most of the people who are now part of Navarra Media, uh, in particular Aaron Bastani, who is one of the co-founders. I, I actually really disliked him when I first met him. I just thought he was a bit of a prick. Um, and, and now he's my prick. <laughs> no, now he's, like he's like a real brother to me. Uh, and... You know, we still we still bicker like we did in the occupation, except now it's in the studio. Um, and what that was was one a political education. I learned so much. I read so much. Uh, those social networks, which are forged in real hardship. You know, there's here's you, here's the police. It's cold, and you've been there for hours. Is that it? Really uh, forges quite strong bonds. And you're very loyal to each other. You're very caring of each other. And then the third thing was having to build institutions which can last because obviously the student movement was defeated. Mm. Immediately the anti-austerity movement was defeated. And Navarra Media came out of the need to preserve political memory. And again, it was people being able to see us do our thinking in real time. Mm. And that's how we became a, a part of... Um, the insurgent political left which is making so many gains now mm. how politically um conscious were you before that that experience at UCL I was a uh, so one of my American friends told me there's a phrase for it in the states I was a red diaper baby okay which means uh my mum was a, a anti-racist activist feminist activist because think about it she's in this country in the 70s and 80s and that's when the racists did not come to play they did not fuck about one bit. And uh, she was involved in organising school escorts for black and Asian children uh, when they would be attacked by the NF. She was involved in uh, what was called a police monitoring shop. So when there was uh, police violence or racist harassment by the police, uh, there was a sort of uh, community-led fight back against that. And uh, you know, she was also a working single mum. And so you sort of see how something as arbitrary as a lack of money puts you in a position of of really intense vulnerability and precarity. Uh, luckily, she sort of had the intellectual tools to help me make sense of what was going on yeah. um, in our childhood. But, yeah, certainly uh, I was raised with it. How um, how does mum feel about the work you do now? Is she proud? Oh, she still thinks I should have done medicine at uni. <laughs> Does she? <laughs> um, no, I think she's she's proud. Uh, you know, she's. Does she ever get nervous about it? Oh, she gets nervous that I'll get hurt. Mm. She's worried that, and and you know, this is sort of the the second turning point that I was going to talk about, which is uh, the far right backlash. So this isn't just you know Daniel Hannan's written something scathing about you in the Telegraph. It's there are death threats, rape threats, uh, racist abuse. And she's obviously really worried mm. that something's, you know, going well, to I saw to the interview you, you did um, where you were explaining how your details got shared publicly so that people were, like, texting you corpses and stuff like that. How did you deal with all that? Uh, I, I had a really strong friendship group 
And that's the thing is that nothing beats your real life support networks. So this was in 2016, the day after uh, the Brexit vote happened. uh, And there was a sort of um, there was an alt-right media personality at a migrant solidarity demo. She's wearing a giant Union Jack hat to kind of cause a stir. And I told people, like, leave it. You know, she's just, you know, surrounded by cameras. You know what she wants. Mm. Don't give it to her. And then some idiot anarchists, because, you know, there's always a couple, just sort of, like, you know, went barreling up and they knocked the hat off. They knocked the hat off. She is like, I've been assaulted, blah, 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 blah. I went over because I hadn't slept because uh, I'd been watching the Brexit results come in. So I went over and I was like, oh, come on. Like, this is disingenuous. You wanted some conflict. You got some conflict. I think I said uh, shit hat, no taste. And um, all of that was on film. Then I got identified through my work with Navara. It got shared through neo-Nazi uh, accounts wow. and online platforms. And it was like the Pandora's box of racism. It was just... it was. Mm-hmm. You know, and the human brain isn't really meant to cope with that much violence. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about your experiences um, being a young Muslim woman. Do you feel like the level of backlash you've got over some of the things you've done has also, you know, been influenced by that? Do you yeah, think your experiences so. are different? Yeah, of course. And and the thing is, is that I don't have to divine that. I don't have to sort of, you know, telepathically work out the intention of some of my critics. They will tell me, mm. like go to a Muslim country or if, you know, ISIS would put you to death in a heartbeat, uh, you know, sending me pictures of child corpses, acid attack victims and saying, that's your culture. Um, Fuck off back to Pakistan. And then I have to tell them that Bangladesh hasn't been Pakistan since 1971. Um, You know, I I don't have to infer what's going on. Mm. And in some ways, it's very clarifying, Mm. you know, where they're coming from and mm. you know who you are and there's not much confusion. What are some of the big changes that you would like to see to change that um, and to change that representation? I mean, so one is that when it comes to pla- platforms like uh, Twitter, Facebook and YouTube, they need to start uh, enforcing their terms of use in a more uh, authoritative way. And they have been able to do that. So when it came to ISIS accounts on Twitter, Twitter just went, this isn't going to be on our platform anymore. And now ISIS can't really use Twitter as a means through which to uh, radicalise and groom, uh, you know, would-be jihadis. Why is that not the case Mm. for far-right accounts? This is now starting to happen in the aftermath of Christchurch. But the fact that it's been so slow tells you that that's because the people in charge of that platform didn't consider it a priority. Mm. Same with YouTube. It knows that a lot of its revenue model and traffic is driven by these far-right figures, the so-called intellectual dark, where Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, uh, so on and so forth. And they're worried that if they start clamping down on people who are using these platforms for the purposes of hate, that they're going to lose a huge portion of their traffic. Mm. And that's why they're slow to act. Mm. So it's not really about the representation of, uh, you know, women of colour, Muslim people, or, you know, people who are broadly anti-racist. The representation is not the problem. It's the platforming of racists that's the mm. problem. Mm. That's fascinating. I would say, like, I don't know if this is too personal, but I would say that I would really struggle with the, the amount that you have to deal with and just, I don't know, the world that you operate in, I feel like I would find it really hard to stay kind of positive and happy. How how do you, how do you keep yourself strong and emotionally resilient when you're in this world? Um, but there's a, there's a 
a phrase from uh, Gramsci, which is pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. You have to have pessimism of the intellect because you need to know the world that you're dealing with and the society it is that you want to transform. You have to have optimism that you can transform it. And this, something that someone said to me is that uh, I was being really morose one day and I was just like, it's all like we're all screwed. <laughs> Climate change is coming for us. And he said, look, the history of the left is not a history of defeats. The history of the left is why you've got a weekend. The history of the left is why you as a woman can enter the workplace at all. It's why you as a person of colour have uh, the rights of a citizen and not a subject of, you know, a colonial regime. That's the history of the left. Bear that in mind. And when you look at it like that, you just think like, yeah, it's really difficult. But the reason why it's difficult is because change is worth having. Mm. Fascinating. How do you think we can get more young women like you involved in politics and feeling like they have a say in these matters? I think one of the things that they need to do is realise that politics is too important to be left by me- left to men. And I think people do realise that. It's just um, expanding some of the avenues for political participation, whether that's... Um, you know, taking up uh, leadership roles within uh, political parties or, um, you know, getting involved with social movements, campaigns that are dear to their hearts. Um, you know, women women have a role. What I would say is that for me, the biggest problem I find is that if you're a woman from a uh, privileged background, you went to private school, you probably feel fine about taking up some of these platforms. Whereas if you went to a comprehensive and maybe didn't go to a Russell Group University, you feel like, I've got nothing to say because I I can't talk like everyone else. Mm. The thing I always say is like, no, you're the person we need to be listening to the most. Mm, mm, Yeah, that you need to you need to break that down. And also, you just need more representation of that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't have those people in front of you, then you don't know it's possible. And I think that that's an important thing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the gender pay gap, because Mm. I've interviewed so many women about this. And I still feel like I haven't quite got enough answers. I'd love to know what you think that we could do to help the gender pay gap. Okay, so the things that you can do about the gender pay gap would actually benefit the entirety of the workforce. And what winds me up is that it's almost treated as this like tiny issue, which is sort of making up that 17%. No. When you look at why there's such a strong gender pay gap, it's because women tend to get the most precarious forms of contracts. So women are overrepresented in part-time work, in zero-hours work, in temporary contracts, all of these things which impede your ability to negotiate for a higher wage. So, for instance, if you were to ban zero-hour contracts, if you were to introduce legislation which made it easier for temporary workers to become permanent workers, if you were to introduce better wages for part-time work, you would see not only the gender wage gap close, but betterment for every single worker regardless of their gender. Mm. And one of the the um, issues with some of these demands is that when you talk about you know the gender pay gap, it's presented as like apolitical. You're just saying, oh, I want to do what's best for women regardless of their political perspective. In a sense, it's apolitical, but it's not going to be every political party that's going to be able to deliver that. You can have Theresa May pay lip service to equality, but ultimately her party, uh, which represents the interests of uh, business, the interests of elites, 
isn't going to introduce that legislation which will better all workers and, in fact, close that gap. Mm, interesting. So basically creating policies that are better for everyone and thereby, almost like as a um, as a side effect, have um, helped to improve the gender pay gap. I mean, that's, that's the thing that will work. When you look at how you address inequalities, because explicit discrimination has been illegal for so long. So you can't just say, well, you're in a dress, going to pay you less. Um, there are all these other means by which the discrimination happens and technically it's legal. Um, and so you have to address those indirect means. Mm, fascinating. If you could have your like dream of maybe a handful of really key changes that you would like to see mm-hmm. in politics, what would they be? Oh, I mean, uh, I, I know what they would be. First, it would be abolish all immigration detention Mm -hmm. because we have people in this country who've been tortured, who've been raped, who might be pregnant, who've been separated from their families, basically in prison without having committed a crime. It's inhumane, it's brutal, and it's also bloody expensive. It's more expensive to detain someone in an immigration removal centre for a year than it would be for them to, you know, theoretically claim every single benefit available to someone in this country. Because the benefit cap is, you know, 26k, it costs uh, over £30,000 to detain someone for a year. So that would be the first thing. Yeah. Uh, the second thing would be introducing something called Uh, universal basic services. So you've heard of universal basic income. This is sort of a turbo universal basic income. Universal basic income says that regardless of your employment status, you should have a uh, living allowance which can meet your most basic needs. And it means that people have much less precarious lives. I think that's great. But when the services that people rely on are still in private hands, that's still a massive transfer of wealth from the public purse into private hands Mm. and you don't necessarily get that back. Whereas if you say that public services will provide not just healthcare and education, but transport, uh, communications access, uh, housing, these are universal basic services, then you have public money paying for public good. And I think that's something that's important. And then the money stays in public hands. Is this part of your luxury communism brand? Uh, so it's not. that's not really my brand. Uh, the person you need to look to is Aaron Bastani, whose book's coming out uh, in June, Fully Automated Luxury Communism. But both of us do agree about universal basic services. Mm. I disagree with him a bit on some of the automation stuff. Uh, but we are both in agreement that you have to have a, uh, you know, that public services aren't just about meeting people's needs. Public services are an expression of a society being able to care for itself. Mm. And that's, I think, a really important principle. Mm. And that's something which I think we have to uh, invest in. Mm, I agree. You uh, said quite publicly that you think a Corbyn government would be better for women. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that? And do you think also for female entrepreneurs it would have an effect? I mean, I I, I don't really know what an entrepreneur is. Um, I I always find it a really weird word. There's, There's a difference between you and I, who are uh, reliant on work to survive and have uh, started up our own projects rather than coming up through 
legacy institutions which existed before us. And someone like Sheryl Sandberg, who doesn't have to live off wages, she can live off her own wealth if she wanted to. And so I kind of feel like the word entrepreneur mm. blurs the distinction between you know these two things. I would say that a Corbyn government, especially if they pursue the more radical edge of their economic agenda, and I really hope they do, because they are looking at doing a universal basic income trial, uh, a four-day week. Uh, they want to invest in uh, childcare for women. Um, also, the idea of having a national social care service because care of the elderly tends to fall upon women in the family. Yeah. All of these things will free up women's time to do the things that they really want to do and feel passionate about. Lots of that stuff will be career oriented because, I mean, I remember my mum having to juggle childcare and also her career pr- progression. Uh, if she didn't have to pay so much for childcare, if she didn't have to stress out about who was looking after us, that would have really enabled her to progress a lot faster. Mm. Um, think about a universal basic income. Think about how much content you could make with a universal basic income. Yeah, yeah. You know, think about how much time you would have to um, creatively produce work if you just didn't have to worry so much about your rent this mm. month. Mm. And all of those things will benefit women, I think. What would be the economic benefit of the four-day week? So the four-day week, the argument is, is that because Britain's productivity is very, very low, uh, some of the lowest in Europe. I think the only uh, country lower than ours is Greece. And yet we work some of the longest hours mm-hmm. in Europe. So there's this huge mismatch between our economic productivity and the hours that we work. So the argument is, is that by taking care of workers better, giving them more free time and also more time to participate in the economy, mm-hmm. that the economy will grow and their productivity will increase. Basically working smarter, not harder. Yeah, smarter, not harder. I also think we all need to get into nature a bit more. I would love to get into nature a bit more. <laughs> like in Sweden, they've got it like sorted. They have like really short days and then they go out after work. Yeah, I mean, they like, also get have into sunlight nature. for six months yeah, a year. But I, I agree with you. <laughs> I think it's a much healthier approach to work. Um, would you, talking about your personal career, would you ever consider running and like going into politics yourself like actually into government god no really fascinating because I, I feel like you'd be great i think the british people have been through enough <laughs> <laughs> they don't need they but don't for need many i feel like they would think it's a, a natural career step for you lots of people would and um you know maybe one day i'll change my mind the reason why i don't think i will is because I've met people who've got a phenomenal grasp of policy, how to craft legislation. I can do the broad brush. Here's the vision. Mm. But when it comes to um, drafting a policy which won't get torn apart in the courts, I have no fucking idea. That's a skill Mm. that you need. And I know lots of people with that skill who come from underrepresented backgrounds and they should really be doing that kind of work. I'll be the cheerleader on the side for them. I'm like, go, go, go. But not me. You are quite the poster girl for these things. And I suppose maybe, I mean, not that you don't have the depth as well, but perhaps like you are best placed to be this like young, fresh energy to talk about these issues in such an eloquent and amazing way. And also I'm not a member of any party. So I'm not a member of the Labour Party. And one of the reasons why is because... You don't just complement a political project into uh, delivering in the public good. You've got to be antagonistic. You've got to push, pull, prod, annoy. Mm. And I feel that that's what my role is. Why do you think so many young people are politically disengaged? Because we're broke. Mm. Uh, Like Fundamentally, the social contract, which had existed for decades, which is the 
knowledge that your standard of living will be better than your parents' generation doesn't hold anymore. So you've got the collapse of home ownership because uh, house prices are inflated by debt um, and that has not been matched by people's pay packets. So it means you've got a whole generation priced out of having an asset. So they, in basic economic terms, that means that you don't have a stake in society. Mm. So why would you have a great deal of faith in the government? Another reason is imminent ecological collapse. It's really hard to feel like there's a future and it's positive when you're like, whoop, Bangladesh is going to be uh, like underwater sometime soon. Mm. Uh, and I think that that's sort of occupied like a backdrop mm. of sort of, of anxiety. And I think the third thing uh, in terms of why people switch off is because you're saturated by the Westminster Pony Show all the time mm. through Twitter, through 24-hour news. And it's kind of like being desensitized. You don't care about that nitty gritty because it's just a sideshow. You've got a life to lead. Yeah, you've just got so much in front of you the whole time. Mm-hmm. Speaking about housing, my grandma, who's 93, uh, bought her first house for £90. Oh, my God. Can you imagine now? I mean, this was obviously years and years ago, but now... And it's frustrating. I was on the James Mack show mm. um, a few weeks ago and he very much believes that uh, you don't get on the property ladder because millennials aren't working hard enough and I was just like just not it's just not the way it is it's, it's also just, just maths uh, <laughs> house prices on average have increased uh, 180% since the 90s pay packets 27% mm. So you just can't keep up with it. Yeah, just, I mean, it's also just like the numbers are there, fam. We just have this, I think we do have this crushing kind of millennial stuff the whole time where it's like, oh, we're always getting criticised. All the younger generations are criticised for the way they're behaving as if they're creating these problems and they're not coming from above. It's like, you know what? I'm never going to be able to afford to have kids. House plants are all I've got. Get me a fern. Off to Ikea we yeah. go. I love my house plants. Yeah, of course I'm in you a relationship. talk to them. Yeah, of course I talk to them. Because can afford to have kids? We've got, um, we've got something called a prayer plant. I didn't know it was called a prayer plant, but in the evening, its leaves would go upwards towards the sky and it was, would rustle. And I felt like we literally mm. had a, another housemate. And then I Googled it and it's called a prayer plant. I recommend it. It's very fun. Oh, of course, I'm going to look that up. I'm actually, I'm actually shopping for a house Are you in the market? As a, as a, as a present. You're never going to get an actual house. house. So go get... Yeah, never going to have an actual house. Just... <laughs> Um, Finally, um, you asked on Celebrity Big Brother and you turned it down because you didn't want to be seen as a tap dancing poodle. Um, Why? Tell me about the decision behind that. Did you even ever consider it? No, no, never considered it. Loads of my friends were like, why did you turn that down? That would have been hilarious. I mean, you could have been Insta-famous afterwards. That's a teeth-whitening sponsorship. You know what? That would be great because my teeth are busted. But um, it's the bottom set that are busted, so I can feel your eyes boring into them. Um, But no, it's got no no appeal to me. Um, Do you think a certain level of notoriety kind of cheapens your message? Not necessarily. It's just I... Can you imagine any greater hell than being trapped in a house for weeks with people who are desperately anxious that their fade that their fame is fading away. Mm. Like, can you it, who would be It's like a Sartre play, no exit, you know? <laughs> who would be okay, who would be your least favourite person to be in a celebrity big brother house with then who would be like your chosen person? My chosen person, Anthony Joshua. Okay, amazing. Um, I thought you were gonna say Corbin. 
I mean, he's, he's, he can come in too. He's sweet, Anthony, but Anthony Joshua. But fine. I would love to spend some quality time with Anthony <laughs> Joshua. Um, and least least favorite, I don't know. Uh, Probably someone far right. Maybe, yeah, I mean, it, I guess like being you know, trapped in the house with a racist is kind of like a horror movie premise. Um, yeah, I'm sure had you have done it, they would have gone down that route. Maybe you know what? Maybe it'd just be someone with a really annoying voice, mm. like, I've, like I've, a really squeaky one, or vocal fry. <laughs> you know, people who have this way of talking. Like it doesn't matter how nice they were. I, I was fine. You could just go on a, off in a room with Anthony Joshua. Yeah, it'd be great. I was like, Shh, don't talk. I don't need you to talk. <laughs> just stay where you are. Just let me look at you. Um, I'm sure everyone asks you this, but is it true that you've never kissed a Tory? It is true that I've never kissed a Tory. Never knowingly kissed a Tory mm. because. I'm pretty sure I've never knowingly kissed a Tory. Yeah. Why? Do you, you know that I've kissed a Tory? I don't think, well, no. no I don't In think your so. research notes, yeah. where, you, where you're like, I've been stalking you. It and... turns out. I, I've never knowingly kissed a Tory. Would you ever know? What if, um, Anthony Josh, no, he's probably not a Tory. What if um, you, there was a Tory that you fancied? Would you kiss a Tory? It wouldn't happen. I mean, so, and the reason why it wouldn't happen is because I think sharing values with someone's really, really important. Mm. That's why the knowingly bit's important. Because, okay, if you're in a warehouse party in Manor House, I haven't checked every single person <laughs> that I've lipsed in that context because that would be weird. But if you're talking about... You could ask the DJ to, like, make an announcement. I'd just be like, hand. raise of hands. Like, okay, right, you, 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 fuck off. <laughs> Enough gentrification has happened in Harrogate without you being here as well. But the reason why I wouldn't is because uh, sharing values is really, really important. Mm. And the values that I hold are about uh, equality and freedom for all, those two things. And in, unless those things are really important to you as well, I mean, how hot can a person be to make up for the fact that you despise everything they stand for? Mm. Yeah. Maybe Anthony Joshua could be the one that, <laughs> Maybe. Would, that, that would make me He could be one that turns you. <laughs> I mean, if he... Oh, God. Anthony, would, if you're listening, I don't think he's going to be a subscriber I don't think he's a Tory. No, I don't think he's a Tory either. He could be a subscriber of yours. You don't know. That's true. If Anthony, if you're out there... <laughs> she needs a new house plant. Anthony, if you're out there, my phone number is... <laughs> white noise. Um, okay, and fi- final point. Um, you're only 27. What do you hope to achieve before you're 30? Um... Well, Kissing I, Anthony Joshua. I mean, you know, I think my man would be really upset about that. No, he would understand. I, I think, w- yeah, that's, you get one pass. Yeah, no, we watched the boxing together once and he was just like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't do this. I was like, no, I can't. Um, I, okay, I would like to achieve a change of government. So I would like to be part of an end to austerity because theoretically... My ideas are to the left of Corbyn's. There is a lot that goes on within the project where I think, like, this needs to change, this is wrong, you're operating on flawed assumptions. But ultimately, the thing that we all have in common is that the poor have been punished for the mistakes of the rich, and that needs to end because the effects it's had on homelessness, on the children's social care service, on the NHS... um, it's immoral. That's the only word that I, I can think of is it's immoral. So if by any way, by, by the time I hit 30, I can say, you know, I, was, I played this little role in ending this terrible thing, I would be delighted. You're made. Yeah, that was it. Also, I would like to go to Mexico. Okay. Um, just for food. Just for food, not politically. Yeah, no, no, not politically. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of cool, right? They've got that history of, like, the Zapatistas and stuff. But um, what I would like to do is go to Mexico and bring back loads of chilies. Okay. 
Fine. Those are some. That's a, that's a modest aim. I think you might be able to achieve that before thirty. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine's brought me back some chilies from Mexico. Maybe that's why it's on my mind. <laughs> You're kind of halfway there then. Yeah. Well, Ash, thank you so much for coming on my show. You've been a fantastic guest. If people would like to find out more about you, where should they go online? Uh, Twitter at io caesar. Um, which was a dumb nickname from uni and it stuck as my Twitter handle which is again something you're not supposed to do yeah. um, you've just basically not done any of the rules but you're smashing it so I kind of think throw like, the rule book out you know only listen to your mama's advice <laughs> like that's the only person you need to listen to amazing thank you so much Thanks for listening to She Starst It with Angelica Malin. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jelly Malin. 